Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. BT Sport Pods. Hi, welcome to Michael Calvin's Football People. I'm joined by Miguel Delaney of The Independent and Seb Stafford-Bloor of Tifo Football. I've been to see Professor Simon Chadwick, one of the most astute observers of the modern game. A fascinating chat with him on the way. Football, meanwhile, has resumed while respecting the mood of national mourning. That has brought challenges, most notably fixture congestion in an already overcrowded season. Liverpool, for instance, will play only twice in the Premier League between September the 4th and October the 9th. They're clearly lacking confidence and continuity. I suppose the question is, Migs, is this shaping into Jurgen Klopp's biggest test? It's certainly very challenging. All the more so because, very visibly, so many of his long-term players, so many of his most reliable players, just look bluntly short on energy. I mean, that was pretty summed up. I think it was by it was either Napoli's second or third goal where it was at a walking pace for Liverpool. Now, people can point to kind of the instinctive reaction there is look how lazy they are, look how switched off they are. I do think there's something more going on. I think it's down to just how taxing it's been for so long for Liverpool players. And also, I think this is where the shortened pre-season is starting to have an effect. Well, the shortened preseason combined with a suddenly very intense schedule. And yet, that's actually where we could have maybe one unintended consequence of some of uh, football's responses to the Queen's passing, which is suddenly basically Klopp, like a few other managers, like Ten Hag, like Graham Potter, has almost been allowed this preseason break. We'll come to that shortly. But at the very least, I suppose, that might allow Liverpool to arrest some of the issues in a way they hadn't had a chance to say. I mean, the, the last time we had something similar to this was not that long ago. It was, what, 18 months ago where he, they went through that long, winless run at home in the middle of the of the main lockdown season. And, and again, I suppose at, at that point, we were kind of thinking, is this it for Klopp? There was the same sort of talk about the 2014-15 season at Dortmund. And then within a few months, he's kind of in the middle of one of his best ever seasons at Liverpool. And, and it was almost a quadruple missed out on it by kind of fairly narrow margins obviously there's, it's not quite a narrow margin from that to this I do think that actually some poor performances started to creep in towards the end of the last season in fact almost the last month of the campaign was pretty much highlighted but it was almost like 
the pursuit of glory was getting them by until ultimately it just they, they were so flat in the Champions League final against Liverpool and it is a little bit as if that carried on I think there might be bigger questions over whether more players could have been changed whether they're going through an adaptation process now because that's a big thing about this really in some ways kind of Klopp is getting it from kind of both sides in that there's criticism for keeping those players together for too long and yet there's been one big change and really it's a huge psychological change as well given Sadio Mane was so integral to that team he's been replaced with Darwin Nunes and that is going to require an adaptation process and that's probably what we're seeing now as well as a few issues but it can happen that these things and suddenly you never get it back to what it was but we won't really know the truth for a little while, and we especially won't really know the truth because they haven't got a Premier League game in a month. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, when professional footballers, you know, by definition, need to play football, don't they, Seb? But is there something to be said for actually you know, distilling home truths on the training ground? And especially in this season, you know, we all instinctively leap to conclusions these days, don't we? You know, instant judgments and all that. But this season is not really going to take shape until probably next spring when all the fallout from the World Cup comes. Yeah, that's probably true, Mike. I mean, I think Miguel's touched on the kind of the burnout issue at Liverpool and the kind of the overworking of players globally generally. I think one of the issues at Liverpool might be that he's got this kind of core set of reliable players who have been counted on to do certain jobs for a long time. So think of someone like James Milner, the currently injured Jordan Henderson. All of a sudden, for different reasons, he's without the services of those players and the utility of them. Henderson's not available. Milner is, as you'd expect, because he's nearly as old as I am, <laughs> he's fading as a force in professional football. What you need in that situation, if, you, if you're trying to rejig a department, if you're trying to reconstruct a mechanism within your team, is you need time. You need time, and you need time in the same place, not taking flights over multiple time zones, friendlies in different continents, and doing the kind of the Premier League, Champions League, Premier League cycle of a, of, of a normal football season. So I think it will help them. I, I think there's a slightly bigger problem which might be insurmountable in the short term, which is that he's kind of, if you look at the demographics of the squad, the age demographics of the squad, he's got players who are perhaps either towards the end of their prime or right at the end of it or beyond it. And he's got players who are hugely entertaining, like your, your Harvey Elliott types, very, very interesting to watch, very clearly going to have an outstanding future. But they don't quite meet in the middle yet. And I think that's a passing of time acquiring the experience type of situation which you can't rush and which the training ground can't really hasten along so it's tricky but it feels like when you watch Liverpool at the moment particularly in defensive transition something weird is going on I'm not nearly smart enough to explain what it is but I remember watching the Napoli game and at certain times during the win over Ajax but you know not a terrific performance I think something there is askew and the team isn't as oiled as it might be without the ball and that's a training ground problem you suspect too mm. you were at the Bayern Barca game on Tuesday Migs and that's a game also that you analysed on, on TIFO wasn't it Seb but when you look at that game what lessons did you draw from it wider lessons Migs in terms of the nature of the challenge of those two clubs to a Liverpool but more specifically Manchester City who you know after last night's win they look like a force of nature don't they yeah although I must say I thought for about for half an hour that game as I watched on my phone in a Munich airport for a delayed flight <laughs> uh, 
Um, he got they, it. They, he they, got they, in they, at half past yeah. one this morning. Yeah, yeah, so, so, so as I, <laughs> I mean, that, the, the viewing circumstances may, may, may be kind of complicated my uh, interpretation a little bit. But I, 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 I did think they were right. This is going to sound a little bit outlandish, but I can foresee a situation where City will obviously motor through the Premier League for the most part. There's always going to be Haaland will always ultimately bail them out, but. I think there is at least something there for going deep in the Champions League in the sense that when it comes to all these games, Guardiola's great obsession has been control. And that's usually been the source of some of his tactical improvisations that have led to defeat, this kind of whole kind of Greek tragedy thing, a kind of, you know, actually ma- making your destiny more likely. But it's still, it, it, that's not going to go away. And it does, and, and this is something that's relevant to the whole chat about how many touches Haaland has. Where ultimately, I mean, what's that doing? That's basically taking a midfield player, or essentially, I mean, because how does, how has Pep traditionally liked his strikers? It's dropping into the centre to op- operate as another midfielder. To, so basically, the opposition sides can completely be outnumbered in the middle. And I think that's led to looser games for City, having Haaland there. And Dortmund kind of gave them real problems last night. It's made them a little bit more stretched to back, as we saw in the Newcastle game. Now, I'd say in 80 to 95% of games, that won't be a problem because no matter what, even if it's only kind of 10 players on the ball at any time, they'll still eventually work the hall. They'll, they'll, they'll basically, they'll make at least two massive chances for Haaland every game and he will take at least one of them. So if that, that, that's not going to be a problem. It's probably why they'll win the Premier League at a canter yet again. But I do wonder whether we're slightly, and it's amazing to say this after Haaland scored a goal everyone was raving about last night, but I do wonder whether it, 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 we are seeing the sort of circumstances where it creates a little bit of a tactical dilemma for Guardiola the deeper we get into the competition, because I will get so deep into the competition. And that's just something I think that's, I suppose, interesting to monitor. But for the most part, you can't, I mean, and I, again, actually, I, I, actually, I thought the most impressive element of the goal last night was uh, Cancelo's ball, oh. I have to say. And Haaland, for, for all his height, doesn't seem to like heading the ball. Would rather kind of <laughs> stick his but sorry in terms of what back to the original question about Bayern and Barca I mean this kind of comes back to what we're saying about Liverpool as well what most struck me about Bayern and Barca was it was basically it was a match between two teams that in contrast to, to City or even Liverpool despite their own trend changes there are two teams that are kind of trying to find a sense of themselves because they've had so many changes. Barca, well, I think they had six levered players on the pitch. And Bayern, because Lewandowski's gone, are going through a huge change of their own. And it actually meant it was an erratic game, but quite an entertaining game because of that and quite very open. But the player that linked it, actually two players linked it together, really. One was Musiala for Bayern and the other Pedri for Barcelona. Mm. What's the view in Germany, Seb, on, on the way that Sadio Mane is is transitioning into that team. Well, I suppose the kind of the the micro discussion has been swallowed by the issues around Bayern Munich as a whole. As usual, when they aren't hurrying the in the Bundesliga, there's a little bit of moaning coming from Bavaria. There are like in Germany, instead of having four Bayern Munichs as there really are in in England, there's one, and so the media focus is almost total. And so that leads to a lot of discussion, that leads to a lot of leaks, that leads to players who aren't getting the, the pitch time being able to air their grievances in a way that they otherwise might not do. I don't think there's been any criticism of, of Manny specifically. I think one of the issues is that with with Lewandowski going, Bayern have really transitioned from being like a, having an attack, which is like a threshing blade to a set of knives. And it depending a little bit more on timing. So those four players, five if you add in Nabri and or Sané, 
they try and there's so much overlap and so many of those pairs can do the same things that they can almost get muddled and get in their own way. The weekend they they drew a Stuttgart and Stuttgart were probably good value for that point. But a lot of Bayern's attacks in that game that didn't result in goals, you could almost imagine Lewandowski, you kind of default him back in there. And you're probably talking about arguably one of the best one-touch finishes in European football history. And it's not quite there because none of those players have really the instincts of a number nine. Even someone like Thomas Muller, he is a such an unorthodox player. He doesn't even really have a specific role. I think at the moment when Manny arrived, it was very much with the red carpet out. This is a superstar of the game. This is one of the most decorated players in the world. And he was given, you know, a welcome that befitted that. I think at the moment there's, it's a system concern. And it's really interesting to kind of, to look at the performance on Tuesday night because there are actually times during that game, if you watch back, where you can hear the crowd getting frustrated with some of that overlap and some of that. So you, you almost have players kind of falling over each other, Bayern Munich players falling over each other. Which literally happens. Different points. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there was um, a Manny blocked a Thomas Muller yeah, shot. Yeah. It was it was a very visible, it was a very vivid description of one of the problems they have to overcome. And I actually, this is, a, this is kind of an interesting point as a whole and in one which we could extend back to our Liverpool discussion. When you take a big part of your attack out and you have to reinvent it, and you have to retime it and reconfigure everything about it. It's difficult. It's really, really difficult. Even for, if you think about the kind of the, the elements in that Bayern Munich team that are still there, like forget the attacking players. You think about, you've got a, a, a midfielder like Josio Kimmich there. That's an outrageous luxury to have in centre midfield. You've got the fullback on the left-hand side, Alfonso Davis, and, and the kind of the, the kind of dynamism that he provides. And then you add in players like Miziala, who's just, I mean... That's going to be one of those things that for the next 10 years, England fans watch him and just think, how did we not sort that out? Because he's just a terrific player. And so it's difficult, even for a team of that strength. And and Mane will be a victim of that. But at the same time, Mane, Mane still has some very, very good moments of Bayern. And um, he's looked well worth his, his transfer fee at the moment. Yeah, well, you, you mentioned Musiala, understandably there, Seb. You know, in the same breath, we can mention Jude Bellingham makes... Yeah, he is going to be a staple of the England team for the next decade or so, isn't he? Yeah, all the more so because it's not just that he's a top-class midfielder, but he's precisely the sort of midfielder that England have been missing. Can do so many roles at once. Actually, it could be it could end up being one of those unfortunate timing things in that really Southgate could have done with him a pretty much sorry done with Jude Bellingham closer to his mid twenties at any point over the last few years because it was pretty much exactly the sort of role. That wasn't filled, and he had to compromise. You know, all, and that's almost the root of the three-man backline. But let let let's see how that develops with England, because for the moment, Dortmund have one of the most promising players in Europe in, in all senses. Although for how long remains to be seen, given, of course, the immediate reaction. Not even <laughs> the game hadn't even finished, and one of the once he'd scored the goal. It was already talking Liverpool and Manchester United have to <laughs> have to make sure it is for the summer. But that that is going to be one one of the, one of the big stories of the summer now already. Yeah, that's for sure. But it is interesting, you know, Benningham's name had been around since he was, you know, before his teens. Another name that was doing the rounds when I did a book on scouting a few years ago was Marcus Edwards when he was at Tottenham at that particular time. You know, he re-emerged after you know quite an intelligent reimagining of his career with sporting against Spurs on Tuesday, Seb, his impact does that sort of play up to the suspicion that in this country we are too suspicious 
of players of let's call them mavericks if we want to call them that. the glenn hoddle problem is, yeah. is what we're getting at yeah hey by the way the scouting book is magnificent Mike. it's my favorite of all of yours it's um so oh, anybody listening you. should um should should definitely read that edwards i don't know see i mean there was so much i'm a spurs fan and obviously edwards was the kind of coming force for years and and he was the kind of the reason for optimism when there was no reason for optimism and the kind of this this and obviously you know Pochettino came along and said what he did about him and um compared him to a young Lionel Messi I should add that that was just in the way that he moves and his kind of stature rather than Pochettino was never making a direct comparison you did hear a lot of stuff though about Edwards about how he carried himself and I suppose his growth into senior football so I would be kind of I'd be hesitant to actually take a position on whose fault that was. Sometimes I think that when a player leaves a club and returns a couple of years later in the game and pops up somewhere else and does well, I think our tendency is always to blame the club and say, well, you didn't give him a chance. Well, if you look back at the players that he was competing for um, during his time at Tottenham, at the point at which he might have broken through as a very, very young player, I don't know that there was a chance there for him. That was a very, very strong Spurs team. And also, you know, when, when Marcus Edwards was given, you know, his loans down the pyramid to, to kind of prove himself, he went out to um, went out to the Eredivisie Divisi for a little bit, and then he went to he had that very very strange spell at um, Norwich City under Daniel Farker when um, there were issues with his timekeeping, and he, he I think he only played a single game, made a single appearance. So I think a couple of things happened. I think yes, it becomes very difficult to give a player like that of his size and kind of his fragility, instead of Premier League minutes straight off the bat. At the same time. Like, the player's got to prove that he's worth it in senior football. And Marcus Edwards never really did that. To his credit, he now looks like a brilliant player. But then that's as much about his growth since leaving Spurs and possibly the, the repercussions of leaving in itself. Like, you, you get a jolt, you get the opportunity to, to grow up away from England, away from English football. That's a big thing for a highly promising English player. I don't think many players, many, many Portuguese fans cared very, very deeply about who Marcus Edwards was when he arrived in Portugal. They may do now, but, you know, he's not a Portuguese national team player of the future, so it doesn't really matter. And sometimes a player needs that. Sometimes a player needs the maturity that comes with moving country and, and standing on his own two feet. And um, I don't know, like it's maybe, maybe you know, in 20 years' time when an autobiography comes out, we can assess it differently. But at the moment, it just seems like one of those things that needed to happen. Yeah. Well, when we talk about you know, people whose careers are outwardly mobile, you know, it's all only natural to focus on Graham Potter. His spell... At uh, Chelsea began with a 1-1 draw on uh, Wednesday night. Meigs, the big point that was made on his appointment was how he would relate or how the senior players would relate to him. It seems to me there's a big decision brewing with Thiago Silva. Obviously a big force within the dressing room. He probably can't play in a four. Is there something inherently fragile about a three with him as Piriqueta and Cucurella. Yeah, I, I certainly say so. And I mean, some of this is just the passage of time. Now, of course, unfortunately, it's a, it's a, it's a general passage of time issue that also echoes the last problem Thiago Silva had in his career, which was with Paris Saint-Germain. But in some ways, I actually don't think it's that difficult a decision for Potter, purely because Thiago Silva was a player that was so anchored to Tuchel. He was very much Tuchel's man. And it, it could actually inadvertently be a way to kind of draw a line in the sand and also maybe show a little bit of toughness because, I mean, I was actually, just to, before I came on, just talking to someone uh, about this, saying, and, the, you know, there was because already there's rumblings about, you know, it starts with a draw 
oh, there's real danger here for Potter. And look who, Ster- look, look, look who Sterling's worked with. You know, Pep Guardiola created the greatest team of all time and changed football. Tuchel managed some of the, kind of the biggest egos to a Champions League final. <laughs> Graham Potter, as someone put to me, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying this opinion, but uh, as it was flippantly put to me made Neil Mope score a few goals <laughs> which is obviously an extremely harsh distillation of, uh, of Potter's career but, but from that when you, when you, when you, let's be fair this is the way some players will think and when you've got a situation like that it, it, it can be a way to just kind of assert your own authority now of course sometimes depending on how you do it it's got to be nuanced I suppose it, it can go wrong as, as, as well as a, it can work to you but yeah it, it definitely is feeding into a big decision uh, and I must say, despite passing on that comment, I'm generally quite um, optimistic for Potter at Chelsea, especially if all of Chelsea's soundings are true, that this is genuinely about a new approach. It's about it's not just about the manager anymore. It's actually about a manager that feeds into a greater ideology. Now, the reality of that is people will, of course, look, oh, well, this has never been Chelsea, but you, you essentially have to forget all that because this is, this is a new Chelsea. It's a new ownership. Uh, and yet, while they... They gave Tuchel less time than Abramovich ever did to any other manager. That was, again, from a different context. And I, I, I think it would have fit them as well to appoint exactly who they want as their man. And I wouldn't, I mean, I wouldn't be overly concerned. Okay, the draw with, um, with Salzburg puts them in a little bit of difficulty for this Champions League group now, given they've got only one point from two of the more forgiving games. But I think they're just as capable of beating Milan twice, especially if he has a little bit of time to work with the team now. And yeah, the, the, the draw wouldn't give me that much concern over his future. I mean, I, I'd still be quite optimistic about it. Todd Bowley was having a conversation and during what I think was some kind of conference. He was having a kind of freeform jazz odyssey riff about, you know, where the future of the game might go. And he tossed out an idea which is not in any way original, which has kind of been a staple of digital content for the past 15 years in English football, I think. And that's fine. I... I'm not at a stage at the moment yet where I feel comfortable judging him just because Miggs pointed out, like we, we talked about sort of some of the conversations and some of the kind of the intentions that Chelsea signified, not just with the dismissal of Thomas Tuchel, but just generally multi-club models, recruitment intentions, these kind of things. At the moment, we're still at the noise stage with a new owner. He signed a lot of players. I think everyone's back went up as soon as they saw the phrase interim sporting director over the summer because that was a little bit alarming but by all accounts it's going to be followed by a proper structure so I, I i don't know what kind of owner he is what i what i do know what i do know is that as english football fans british football fans irish football fans we have been conditioned to distrust american ownership and that's not unreasonable really because there have been so many well not so many but there is such a prominent example of negative american ownership that any american owner coming into the uh, into the league now gets tired of that same brush and that's not necessarily fair it's a it's a normal reaction from the from the, the sporting public but Bowley must be allowed to create his own identity within the premier league to become his own owner he's obviously a very smart businessman in terms of like whether he speaks out too much, I mean, there aren't, there isn't really such a thing as a humble billionaire. If you're a billionaire, if you have that much wealth, you're going to feel entitled to express your opinion about whatever market you're operating in. That's just human nature. May not like it, may not be what I want to hear particularly, don't agree with a lot of what he says, but then this is the nature of the beast. This is the kind of person that owns a football club now. It's just a reality of it. And I don't object to him thinking about ideas and, and sort of tossing that into public. What I do object to is this kind of footballing habit 
now that exists whereby there is no such thing as a new idea which doesn't involve someone saying let's play another game let's film it and let's sell the Mm. tv rights for it that is not original thinking and it's also not what the game needs professor simon chadwick has great insight into the growing american influence on the english game his vision of the future is pretty depressing but pretty accurate Simon, thanks for joining us. Now, here we are at a time of national mourning. Football has returned with due respect, but we see fixtures being postponed and the sense that it's a congested fixture list that's almost close to breaking point. Do you agree with that? And where is football finding itself? And is it in danger of killing the golden goose? I think obviously for football, it's a peculiar industry. People often refer to it as a peculiar industry because in order to deliver a product that is of an appropriate or requisite standard requires highly skilled labor. And that highly skilled labor force is in short supply globally. So if we're all great footballers, we'd all be playing football, but we're not all great footballers. And so there is a there is a human constraint ultimately on what football can and can't do. And and this I think puts the sport in direct opposition to the people that own it, the people that run it, the people that want to invest in it, because in essence, whether you're a a private equity investor or a sports entrepreneur, or for that matter, even an Asian politician that is seeking to generate a return from football the more that you can deploy football the more that you can sell it the more that you can get people to consume it the more beneficial for you it's going to be but you know football players can't play all day every day every week every month for the whole year it's just impossible i think in part the franchise network that we've seen at, at Manchester City, we see at Red Bull, we also see stories now that Chelsea are considering a franchise network. That is one of the ways potentially that clubs can start to address some of the human constraints that they face. But nevertheless, these organisations still are oriented towards delivering a product that people are interested in as many times as possible. So I think there is something not just about the organisation and of the sport and the model upon which the sport functions now, but I think there's also something too in terms of the way that people consume it. Because the reason that football is seen as being such a, a significant commercial proposition is that we have a voracious appetite for it. So it's, you know, it's, it's almost like, depleting Earth's natural resources. You know, if we're all voraciously consuming this, you know, it does put pressures and constraints. We see this with the gas market, for example. You know, we all want gas and there's not enough of it. And that causes issues. And, and we've, we've got a similar kind of process in, in football. So I've always been a firm advocate, a big advocate of we need as a community of people with an interest in football to talk openly and sensibly about how we address these issues. But there are so many conflicting issues, aren't there? If you think about it, you know, the World Cup in Qatar this year, it's been imposed or shoehorned into the most crowded schedule that football has ever had domestically. What impact in terms of competitive impact would that have, you think, on, say, the Premier League? 
We've got to keep in mind that with Qatar, again, I've always thought with the award of the World Cup to Qatar is it was going to happen. It was only a matter of time before it happened. And what FIFA didn't do is it didn't explain to the old industrial heartlands of the sport in Europe and South America what was about to take place. The world is globalized and you're seeing countries, obviously, we go to Japan, South Korea, South Africa, we've heard of China. It looks now that Saudi Arabia is very seriously going to consider bidding for the 2030 World Cup. If Saudi Arabia does that, it's going to have to take place in November, December again. And so this issue will come back again. And I really don't think that as a community, we, we've addressed these issues. We've not really spoken about these issues and how they impact upon the game in general not just at the elite professional level but you know, all the way down through the pyramid because i think one of the things i've come to learn about football is is you know, it's a bit like the old adage if the united states sneezes the rest of the world catches cold you know it's a bit like you know, if the premier league sneezes then the rest of football catches cold and we need to talk about such issues and not just in britain but elsewhere too but i think what we are now seeing is is that Obviously, there's a lot of focus on teams and recovering from games and uh, do you have the depth of squad to be able to compete even though there's fixture congestion. And from my standpoint, this is about organizational resilience. And so you know, whether we're talking about Qatar or we're talking about disruption caused by shock events such as the death of the Queen, I think ultimately the organizations that respond better to this and competitively are going to be in a better place are the ones that are more resilient mm -hmm. and the, that resilience comes from good management it comes from good leadership but it also comes from having money you know you think some, think about some of the bigger clubs that do have the financial resources to deal with shocks but of course they're not necessarily the issue it's the others that don't have the resources mm -hmm. has the football world irrevocably shifted on its axis you know you talked about a saudi bid are we essentially now gravitating towards a new set of paymasters i i mean it's really interesting as I, I lead a bit of a schizophrenic existence i think because i was born and brought up on Erson park road opposite <laughs> middlesbrough football ground and my dad and my granddad and my great granddad and my brother and my uncle and, and, and you know the story and, and so middlesbrough till i die and i can't change so there's that part of me that really understands how the game was and I think understands how for many, many people still is. But in my professional life, I find myself in parts of the world and talking to people and thinking, well, you're actually very different to me. And you've got a very different view of how football should be. And this is the consequence, not just of the Premier League being successful and attractive and engaging, but it's also some of the bigger changes in the world. You know, the, the fact that we know, for example, in Britain, Economically, we're not as strong as we once were. Countries like Saudi Arabia are strengthening and getting even stronger. Chinese economic growth, you, know, you go back 5, 10, 15 years ago, whilst British economic growth was 2 or 3%, Chinese economic growth was 10% and above. So for those of us in, in Britain and Europe, I think we do have to accept that the kind of football that we once knew, certainly at the elite professional level, is no longer there, it's gone. And there is a pretty strong chance that it's not coming back. Does sports washing or perceived sports washing, let's put it like that, work? Because it seems to me that it's pretty double-edged. So if you take Newcastle as an example, that club was treated with general sense of affection. It was almost like the favorite second club because of the passion of the fans. 
you know, the identity of club, city, community. Now, to be perfectly frank, they're resented. How do you square that circle? So sport washing is uh, very often seen as being a diversionary tactic. It's like deceiving people. Um, so if we take the case of the Saudi Arabian Public Investment Fund's ownership of Newcastle United, instead of talking about the murder of journalists or the suppression of opposing political views or the treatment of women, what we're doing, we're talking about the Gallagher end and we're talking about St. James's Park and Newcastle United. And so there is a belief among some people that in essence, we forget about all the bad stuff that's associated with Saudi Arabia and instead we talk about the football and, and that is sport washing. All the golf. Yeah, all the golf. So you're cleansing image, you're cleansing reputation, hence sport washing. But I think there is something really interesting about this. I remember a, a weekend in, in February earlier this year, 2022, when we were told that 81 people were executed in uh, Saudi Arabia in one day which um, is apparently one of the highest totals ever, certainly the highest total, I think, since the early 1980s. Now, why would I know this? Well, the reason I knew this is because there was a story that a Saudi Arabian buyer wanted to buy Chelsea from Roman Abramovich. So I think the interesting thing about football is, is yes, it can cleanse image. Yes, it can cleanse that reputation. But at the same time, it also shines a light on crimes and misdemeanors as well. And you think about Qatar, you know, Qatar has been there since 1971, certainly in its current form. There have been immigrant worker deaths, there's been mistreatment of immigrant workers, and yet none of us really talked about this until 2010 and afterwards when Qatar won the right to host the World Cup. So I think sport can serve a purpose of cleansing image, but it can also serve a purpose in terms of raising awareness of some of the most serious issues that we face. Mm. That moral dimension, if you like, how prepared do you think the Qataris are for the World Cup? I think that in many cases, players and teams and national associations and sponsors and commercial partners are trying to fly under the radar on all of this because as soon as you express any kind of opinion, it's going to set off a chain reaction. So if you are to call out human rights in Qatar, then potentially what you do is across the Arab world, across the Islamic world, you know, you're talking about big countries with high economic growth, lots of people spending money on football, buying TV rights from places like England. If you're speaking out against Qatar, you know, potentially it does affect your business in these countries. At the same time, if you say nothing and do nothing, there is a sense of complicity. You know, so I'm sure there'll be certain newspapers in Europe and certain rights groups in Europe who will say, well, you know, England, Gareth Southgate, you've said nothing, so you're complicit. So therefore you're condoning what happens there. So I think that the people who are representing the likes of sponsors and national associations and team managers are trying to find a middle way where they say something without really saying anything, because they don't want to antagonize either of the extremes in terms of the opposing views in the argument. Um, but of course, what this does is it, you know, it, it essentially makes football teams and their officials, and for that matter, sponsors, it makes them look bland, it makes them look non-committal. And so it's a really, really tough one for them to navigate through. And, and I know that it has caused some sponsors problems. We think about ING in, in the Netherlands and Belgium, for example, Carrefour and its sponsorship of the Belgian national team. There was a story that Carrefour had actually uh, withdrawn activation of its sponsorship deal with the Belgian national team in Qatar, because basically they, they, were, they supposedly were afraid of, of 
causing problems with their clients, their customers in Belgium. Problem is, is Carrefour is the biggest supermarket in Qatar. And so then uh, Carrefour actually issued a public statement to say, no, they would still be present in, in Qatar and they would still be uh, activating their sponsorships. But clearly they're going to have to do it in a sympathetic way if they're not going to antagonise people in different parts of the world. Sure. If we're looking at football's financial growth, certainly in England, it's reflected in the sort of sums at which they are now valued. Liverpool recently valued in the region of $4.5 billion. <coughs> Can anyone, apart from nation-states, afford those sort of prices? I'm, I'm kind of reminded of, of the, you know, the old saying, you know, that something is only worth what somebody's prepared to pay for it. Um, and, and so, you know, is there really anybody out there in the world right now? You know, Manchester United were led to believe that the Saudi Arabian government were interested in Manchester United, but were unwilling to pay what was being asked. So I think we've got to exercise a, a certain level of caution when we're thinking about the values of these clubs. Clearly there are some states and many of us would immediately point to the Gulf. But you've also got to think about you know, the biggest sovereign wealth fund in the world is actually Norway's. So the Norwegian government potentially has the resources to buy a football club, but it would probably make a policy choice not to do so. But you've also got Indonesia, Malaysia, uh, you know, the likes of Kazakhstan, Azerbaijan. So what we've got to expect, I think, is if there is going to be more state investment in football, is, is it may not necessarily come from the, 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 the kind of places that we would normally expect. But otherwise, I think what we have seen over the last two years in particular, so mid-2020 until now in 2022, is consortiums of different buyers from places such as the United States getting together. And... These are individuals, if we think about Chelsea, if we think about Burnley, both of which have been bought by US private equity investors, you see in France, um, there have been several clubs, for example, um, we think about Red Star Paris, for instance, also bought by a US consortium. So I think the view is, is rather than a single entity from an Asian government buying a club, instead what we're getting is that as the alternative is... U.S. sports entrepreneurs, private equity investors, even celebrities, and we you know, we heard you know, through the Chelsea saga that you know somehow Lewis Hamilton might be involved, or Venus Williams might have been involved. So now it's a case of finding people who have the resources, the financial resources, but I think also the willingness to invest. And so what we're getting, it is almost as well we're getting a polarization of of ownership in the sport. It's either a an oligarch or a um, a member of the government from somewhere, or alternatively, it's a group of people who basically they're there to make money, they're business people. That American influence, you know, obviously, it's highlighted by the activities and very profitable activities of the Glazers at Manchester United. We've had Todd Bowley this week introduce himself with some, to be honest, fairly predictable ideas, all-star game based on his baseball background, do you think that influence, that degree of influence, will be sustained or will it be sort of quietly shelved and we just get on as we were and, and they basically just take over a business? So I think my view of, of people like Bowley and, and the Glazers, you know, the Glazers didn't buy Manchester United because they're like hanging around the Arndale Centre. Um, <laughs> they're business people. And the same with Todd Bowley. He's a business person and... and I know that the Glazers are criticised and you know, certainly if the Glazers were running my football club, I think I probably would criticise them as well. But you know, in some ways, they pass the Ron Seal test. They do what they say on the tin. 
So what business people do is they generate revenues and control costs to make a profit. And that's what they do. And and for me in that, that fundamentally, and, and, and football fans need to be aware of this, that fundamentally is what has changed. You know, these people have got no sentiment for Manchester. These people got, as I say, they, they, they don't hang around the Arndale Centre, you know, going into uh, shops and buying things. You know, they're there to make money. It is a business. And if we, we look at, what Todd Bowley is now saying, and he's, he's talked about having franchises across the world, you know, as, as Manchester City has and, and as Red Bull has and others have. Starbucks operates a franchise system. You know, Burger King operates a franchise system. McDonald's operates a franchise system. I'm saying this to reiterate again is the Glazers, Bowley and these others, they don't look and see football. Um, they don't look and see, you know, kind of decades if not centuries of history what they see is a, a business opportunity a way to make money and and so what they're going to do is the techniques and and the tactics and the strategies that they've used in in their other businesses they're going to use in united or chelsea or wherever else it might be and i'm sorry it's happening i'm really really sorry it's happening and i wouldn't want it to happen to my club but from a professional point of view, well, if you're a business person, that's what you do. You run a business. You control costs and make revenues. But let's not forget the American or certain American owners were the ones driving English support or initial English support for the Super League. Do you think, is that concept dead or is it merely dormant? The Super League idea is dormant. There was actually another Super League proposal, and people really didn't talk about this very much when, when all of this was happening. So if you go back to 2008, when, again, the Champions League reforms were being discussed between UEFA and the clubs, there was a Super League proposal back in 2008. And in the end, UEFA negotiated a deal, a Champions League settlement that the bigger clubs were happy with. They bought them off. Yeah, they bought them off. And I think what we're seeing is, is, or what we saw with the Super League was, was you know, part of a power play by the bigger clubs to make sure they got as big a share of the cake from the new Champions League format that starts in 2024. And I think they did that. In theory, that, that will happen again. And you know, so long as you're going to have the Champions League developing and new income streams and new markets and people talking about different formats and competitive balance, potentially the big, powerful clubs in Europe will, will come again and say, hey. But what I think is, is different this time is, is we went 2008 to 2021 before the whole issue uh, began to bubble over. I think the cycle will become much shorter you know, clearly what we now have is a very clear demarcation between those clubs that qualify for the Champions League and those that don't. And so I can foresee you know, the, the likes of Bowley or the likes of the Glazers or you know, maybe uh, you know, the, the owners of Newcastle United, if they make it to the Champions League, you know, they didn't invest in these properties to not be, to be anonymous and not make money. They, they bought these clubs to be prominent. They bought these clubs to make a profit. And so they will exert their power. And, and so if we think you know, we, we've kind of hit ground zero right now when it comes to elite professional football in Europe, I don't think we have. You know, it's, uh, there's more ahead. It will come more frequently. And how it will look in another 30 years on from, you know, we've had 30 years since the Premier League, 30 years since the Champions League, in another 30 years, I think we might be quite horrified by what we find. You've just preempted my final question, actually, which was, give me your vision of that 
future, about 30 years hence? I always think about this in terms of, you know, when I was a kid, my mum always used to take me on to Linthorpe Road in Middlesbrough. And you could buy, you know, you could go to the fruit and veg shop, you go to the, you know, you, you, you know several small supermarkets, you go to uh, you know, news agents to buy newspapers and magazines. And, you know, there were lots and lots of small organisations that you could buy from. And then something happened. And what we've been through, certainly over the last 25, 30 years in, in Britain, is, you know, you're going to buy probably your food and maybe even your clothes and your newspapers from a very small number of very powerful organisations, Tesco, Sainsbury's, you know, Morrison's, whoever else it might be. And I think that kind of market dynamic we're already beginning to see emerging over the last 25, 30 years of the Premier League and the Champions League is, you know, it is a small number, you know, whether you're in Wigan or Scunthorpe or, you know, Yeovil or wherever it is, you know, historically that would be your team. Whereas now, yeah, you're more likely to watch Manchester United or maybe Liverpool or Arsenal. You may even be, and this for me is a really interesting one, is the number of people wearing Paris Saint-Germain shirts in England. You know, where, where did that come from? But essentially what you have, what you now have in football globally and, and certainly in Europe is a very small number of very large organisations exerting a considerable amount of power over fans and over consumers. And, and so what you've got is... You know, kids from Lincoln and kids from Yeovil growing up with Paris Saint-Germain and Real Madrid, not Lincoln City or Yeovil Town. I think that kind of behaviour then becomes normalised. And just, just as for many of us, we go to Tesco, we go to Sainsbury's, we don't think about it, it's just what we do. People consume Paris Saint-Germain and Real Madrid, it's in Milan, Bayern Munich, you know, it's just what they do. And so my vision of the future is, is of a, a less diverse and I guess less enriching elite professional football experience than certainly if you go back to the 60s, 70s that we had then. Well, as a, an unashamed football romantic, going to the corner and have a quiet week. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Well, I've dried my eyes now, Seb. A lot of home truths there, weren't there? Yeah, very dystopian. But very fair, though, because I, I think the thing that stuck with me is the point he made about how the game that a lot of people grew up with and knew and still hanker for is most likely gone. And it's a very compelling point. And it's also, I think, what makes you think, and it's very easy as a football fan to become quite insular and quite focused on your own environment. Whereas now, because football is a global game, you have to change your perspective a little bit with regards to certain aspects of it. Probably not with regards to certain other aspects, but and it's worth kind of changing your perception of what football should be and what it's likely to be in the future. And that's a very interesting point. It's a very, very good interview. One thing I was you know, particularly intrigued by, uh, Migs, and it's an area that you've already covered extensively, is is you know the fallout from and the significance of the World Cup in Qatar. You know, we can ask... Are they ready logistically when you look at the, you know, the shambles of, you know, a stadium trial recently, mile long queues, no water, you, you know, that suggests not. But what about the increasing influence of the Gulf states and, and Saudi Arabia? You know, we talked about a dystopian vision there, but um, it's probably an accurate one, isn't it? Yeah, completely. In fact, it's this is also relevant to discussion we're having about Todd Bowley as well in the sense that while I, I would agree there's an element almost a kind of easy 
because of because of the American accent, it is an easy kind of way to dismiss it all. It feeds into kind of maybe old prejudice in English football. But that said, if if you if you talk to people within football now, and especially that work in these sort of spheres of who invests in the game, uh, when when clubs go for sale, what sort of buyers there are, the the dynamic in football is pretty clear now. The game is essentially caught in the, the twin forces driving it are. Gulf states mostly centered around the Gulf blockade, buying clubs or buying influence in the game for hard political purposes, often called soft power. And even the phrase sports washing, I think, is actually now, it's no longer quite fit for purpose because it's almost too soft a phrase itself. And on the other side, it's basically a kind of a, a strand of American capitalism that have seen that football is not just the biggest sport in the world, but one of the biggest cultural forces in history and looking to get return of investment out on that. And that is precisely what's shaping the game now. And But it, but in terms of pure power and influence, and because of the very nature of the ownership structures, it's it's the uh, the Gulf blockade side that's actually, even though there's obviously rivalries within that that's driving it, it's the Gulf blockade side that's winning out really through pure force of numbers because they can invest so much money into it. And it's amazing. I was just talking about, about this to someone the other day. I mean, it's it's not just staging the World Cup or owning football clubs it's that that's actually allowed the um states and and again it should be stressed states with very questionable human rights records we should be asking questions at every turn of this but they, they've not they, they don't just have these marquee elements of the game they're also essentially beginning to control the infrastructure of the game you only have to look at kind of uh, Nasser Al-Khalafi's role in, in football now where he's not just the president of Paris Saint-Germain he's the head of the ECA he, he, he's also at the head of, uh, of, of BN Sports all, all, all these spheres but then you have on the other side Saudi Arabia now who I mean it's quite interesting there in, in Fantino and the way he kind of stra- he's straddling the Gulf blockade himself and that at the moment he's going to be based in Doha in the build up to the World Cup and yet one of the interests he's, he's, he's courting more than anyone else right now or who are potentially courting him but he's receptive to it are Saudi Arabia who are Qatar's great rivals in the region and it's, it's, it's beginning to have I, 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 it's going to be what, what greatly concerns me and why I thought the, com- the conversation Professor Chadwick was so spot on is that it, 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 this is kind of classic um, you know uh, boiling frog stuff where it's not until it's too late that people actually cotton on to the reality here which is why I think I actually find some of the discussion around it quite, fr- quite frustrating why I think and, uh, but look we, we, I suppose it's easy to do and this is kind of one of the points of it but when you just purely talk about clubs like Manchester City or Paris Saint-Germain or Newcastle in purely football terms that kind of does the job it does the job they want the, the, the one thing I did want to pick up on that Professor Chadwick said actually was he mentioned how there can be a kind of he didn't he didn't say negative consequence but he did say that it can raise awareness of human rights issues in these states and that can be one way football can work i must say i disagree with that i think while it raises issues what actually happens is though like if say if you if you, if you if, as, as a basic example of how this this works then if you look at saudi arabia for what for most of the last 20 30 years when people thought of saudi arabia what do they think of probably oil a repressive regime and probably capital punishment. And again, that's quite a kind of a blunt distillation, but probably close enough to the general truth. Now, what 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 are people saying? What's the, what's the discussion about Saudi Arabia? Sure, the human rights stuff is coming into it, but there's much, much more discussion about kind of Saudi Arabia as a sporting centre. Suddenly, in conversations about what they're doing in Newcastle, about LIV golf, and even if there is kind of 
if there's an element of what is a basically a minority of the media or academics talking about the negative sides of this, even if that has grown, it's grown as part of a, a much greater whole. So basically, all that sort of talk is actually diluted by talk about other issues and other more kind of benign issues re- related to these states. And as a classic example of that, you know, look at Abu Dhabi, where I mean, I was t- I was talking to. Um, Professor Christian Ulrichson about this two years ago, and he pointed out that, and and and, and sort of Human Rights Watch, they would say the same that, in, in when Abu Dhabi bought Manchester City in two thousand and eight, for all the talk about how football can be a lever to kind of help help these, you know, help help human rights situation in these states. Well, the 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 human rights situation within Abu Dhabi is much worse in twenty twenty two than it was in two thousand and eight, especially as as regards kind of um, government dissidents. And it's why I would be, I wouldn't go so far in with that, with that, with, with that argument that it actually raises awareness. But it, you know, this might sound a bit trite after after the issues you've just raised there, Migs. But you know, I'm looking at this also as individual power plays by individual players. You know, we, we're now Seb on standby, I think, for Cristiano Ronaldo to probably leave Manchester United, pick up. Two hundred million pounds or so, and go, end up in Saudi Arabia. You know there is a theory going around that Mbappe will stay with PSG. He'll excel in Qatar in the World Cup, you know, reflected glory for his owners, and then he goes to Real Madrid next summer. So, you know, even on that individual basis, everything is is shifting on its axis, isn't it? Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, I would still. I would still highlight some of the differences in those situations. Ronaldo is an interesting one because you have to factor in what motivates Cristiano Ronaldo and you know what his animus towards staying at Manchester, what his reluctance towards staying at Manchester United is, and um, the importance of that, or the slightly strange importance of that Champions League record to him. That was an odd one. But then I, I look at, I think if you look at the generation of players now, like if you go back twenty years, a player's ambition probably the nascent era of Premier League footballer. You make enough money so you never have to work again, right? That's the aim. So you can float around a yacht or buy a nightclub or, you know, start your own business, whatever. Okay. Now I think like a player thinks of himself as an industry. A player thinks of himself as I'm a vehicle for my future ambitions. And ambition means not starting a business, but representing something potentially. You're an ambassador somewhere or you're a a, a proxy for some mega industry. I don't know what, you know, in, in what instances that might occur. But someone like Mbappe, if you look at it from his perspective, or you look at it neutrally from the perspective of a young guy with an enormous talent, of course you put yourself in the position that he's put himself in because you have not just footballing ability, not just money, not just penthouses and fast cars, but power and authority. And that's kind of what's different. Like the world in which that occurs is another issue. And Miguel's done a fine job of, of describing that. But a player has a, a, at the very top of the game, the very elite level of players, they have more circumspect and far more detailed appreciation of what the world around them actually is and what they can achieve within it beyond the football pitch. And I think that makes a very interesting, that, that creates a very interesting situation going forward because how players conduct themselves with all these political forces and all these kind of, those questions which are very very difficult to answer in which a lot of cases do not have a perfect answer that's the kind of environment which the game is played now for young players but there's an interesting one there as well i mean mape is one of many exactly because or precisely because they see themselves as an industry now so part of that industry or, or a hugely powerful arm of that industry is a kind of some sort of charitable trust or charitable initiatives and you know like there's been great play about say 
Mbappe's connection with LeBron James or make, making the world a better place. And yeah, on the other side, he's essentially, he's an ambassador for sports washing. He, he's someone, he's a, a hugely powerful tool in what Qatar are trying to do with Paris Saint-Germain. And at, at that point, like, eventually there has to be, this tension has to, has to be realised at some point. Or, or, or at what point will a player take a stand? At what point will, you know, because it, 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 it's inevitable. It's, I think for the, for the past... 10 years or really for the past five years this has been a subject I think players have generally been given a pass because they have to live in the reality of the game it's about their career they're kind of fairly single-minded about it but the more the players talk about or, or see themselves as an industry the more they talk about the awareness of their career and what they try to do the more this is going to become an issue and I suppose a similar one then is I mean, this isn't Haaland's issue so much in itself I suppose but more kind of the discussion around Haaland where he's he's worn the, those human rights t-shirts when Norway have played in relation to Qatar I would actually say from, from experience, Norway and its its readership, say, or its its media audience is by far the most resistant to sports watching, certainly as regards the Qatar World Cup. So I remember a, a Norwegian colleague telling me he, he wants to, uh, to do something where the the World Cup was just discussed in purely football terms and he got loads of responses about, oh, you're talking about the slave World Cup. And then the, the country's new absolute superstar, to a greater degree than I've ever seen, has signed for another sports washing project in in Manchester, Manchester City, and what Abu Dhabi are trying to do there. So uh, there's that that that's a kind of a tension in the game that is developing, and I think we're going to see more of in the next few years. Yeah, well, as Simon Chadwick says, football's being shaped by individuals and institutions who regard it as a cold, profitable business. For many of us, of course, it's more personal than that. It allows us to lose ourselves for several sacred hours. It's a link between our past and the present. Its future, as expressed by Simon, doesn't really bear thinking about. Money distorts and dilutes. It cheapens something that millions cherish. I'd love to hear your views, but thanks, of course, to Simon, Miguel and Seb for their insights. Thanks also to you for your feedback. It's much appreciated. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.